welcome! I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is Unorthodoxy and in this episode um, I'm probably going to talk for too long uh, because I, I have a lot of stuff I want to share and there's pretty much no way I can find uh, to shorten it without feeling like I've done the subject matter a horrible injustice. And uh, what's worse is I might end up doing the subject matter a horrible injustice anyway, in which case, <laughs> abandon all hope ye who listeneth to this podcast. So, well, every now and then, um, as you all know very well, some of you painfully well, uh, in fact, life presents us with what you could politely call challenges. You might from time to time feel destabilized, plagued by uncertainties, self-doubt, in the midst of relational strife, stressed out by work, uh, in a period of grieving maybe, um, or plagued by losses, even moments of despair. Sometimes things just don't go well. We all go through times of upheaval, discontinuity, and vulnerability. And just like you, I've been through a few of those times. In fact, I'm going through a bit of one of those times right now. Um, although it's it's not as rough as some of the things I've gone through, thankfully. Uh, but it's been enough to get me to consider and reconsider a few strategies for finding a bit of equilibrium and for reclaiming some tranquility of mind. And even though this uh, podcast can at times be very heady, I want to share uh, something that's a bit... Um, what's the opposite of heady? Uh, hearty? Um, <laughs> that sounds like something you'd say in a pirate movie. Anyway, like hearty, something, I don't know, more, more sort of centered on emotion. So uh, strategies for finding equilibrium. One of those strategies that I have found incredibly helpful is classical Stoic philosophy. When I was 14 or 15 or 16, sometime in my adolescence, I can't remember the exact year or age, my dad did what was probably the best thing any parent can do for an overly thinky, sensitive, introverted teenager. He gave me a copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Um, I'll say a little bit about Marcus in a bit, but for now, I'll just say that I think he kept me sane. Uh, this gift that my dad gave me kept me from, in, in, fairly, uh, in a fairly turbulent time, feeling like the world was this insurmountable problem with no hope of redemption. Of course, there were lots of other good things, uh, wonderful uh, people as well, and ideals and hopes that kept me sane. But Stoicism offered a way for thinking through problems and emotions that I found really redemptive. And pretty much whenever I've gone through a rough patch, I've return to, to Stoic thinking just as a reminder of some really profound tools and things to think about that, that yeah, that they can be helpful. And of course, I thought it would be great to share some of that with you. So against all caricatures, and there are many, Stoicism is not boring and dry. Um, the name of the school of thought actually comes from Zeno of Citium, who used to sit on his stoa, that was his front porch, thinking and talking about life and just how to live well. And that sort of carried on into a number of thinkers from from different um, different parts of basically ancient uh, Rome, uh, moving from ancient Greece into ancient Rome. So Stoicism has always had this dialogical, relational, personal, and, and really realistic edge to it. And it's it's also very dynamic. The Stoics didn't absolutely 
always in everything agree with each other, but there definitely is a trend that can be observed in all of their work. And so, um, yeah, I'll examine some of the, the trend as I see it. And, and what I can absolutely say with confidence is that it's not about turning us into emotionless robots. In fact, the, the major focus of Stoicism is how to be more fully and truly human. The idea is really to, to live a centered, peaceful life, not a detached, uncaring one, but also not an overly attached life. I think um, sometimes that's the problem is we, we become overly attached to things that really are not there for us to become attached to or like cling to desperately. So yes, today we often use the word stoic to refer to someone who doesn't complain when they're going through a tough time. And I suppose it can uh, refer to that, or we use the word to refer to a character in How to Train Your Dragon. But this is obviously a, a very small fraction of what Stoicism is about. So hopefully part of what I can do here for you is talk about Stoicism in a way that gets past the caricature and into some of its profounder truths. Um, and also, I don't want to be overly technical about it. Uh, there are technical details. There always are technical details, but I think we can kind of leave um, some technical scholarship aside to to kind of get to some some essences here. So, also I should mention that I, I have discovered in Stoicism a kind of implicit critique of ideology. Uh, Stoicism really looks quite intently at um, power structures or frameworks that guide our perceptions, and it tells those power structures to stop being so fake and stupid and manipulative, although not necessarily in those words. Stoicism looks at politics and recognizes the political sphere as a necessary thing, but also sees it very much as a game, um, not kind of like the central thing in reality. And I think often politics becomes absolutized in that sense, in, especially in the sort of wider global and national spheres. But um, but it's a game for the Stoics, um, one of whom was ob obviously a very prominent politician, Marcus Aurelius. Um, and in fact, the Stoics thought that a lot of life is a game. It's not the whole reality. It's only part of it. Well, there are lots of things that we would think are kind of absolute that Stoics try to make relative, to make sort of um, to diminish the hold that those things have on us. And often we we kind of get caught up in the games that we play and, and the result is that we get distracted from more vital aspects of reality. And so the, the part, the role of, of the philosopher, and that's you and me over here, um, is to be able to discern between reality and illusion, between truth and the games we play with truth. It turns out also that Stoicism is very closely linked to the history of Christianity. A lot of early Christian sources drew from the works of the Stoics without any qualms, actually, because so much of it fitted within their own ethical system. Even Jesus seems to have borrowed from the Stoic thinking, although uh, historical Jesus scholars are kind of looking at, you know, was it Jesus or was it, say, Matthew, who was putting Stoic ideas into Jesus's mouth? But that's not for us to decide. Um, this doesn't mean, though, that the, the early Christians were totally in agreement with the Stoics. And people are now very, very welcome to disagree with them. You're totally welcome to disagree with them. 
But the early Christians did see, as we can now, that the Stoics were filled with a kind of good sense, common sense in a way. Quite a, a bit of contemporary scholarship explores this relationship between Stoicism and, and Christianity. But I've only engaged with uh, one book, which I have here. It's, um, it's Stoicism in Early Christianity, uh, edited by Tuamas Rasimus. I'll put that in the show notes so that you can have a look um, at that if you want. It's a really, really interesting read. I mean, obviously, some, sometimes what they say is that um, some of the authors in that book um, talk about how the Stoics actually also were contradicted by some Christian teaching. So there, there's this kind of dynamic conversation, but largely there's this really positive influence um, from Stoicism in the direction of the formation of, uh, formation of Christianity. Um, and also, I mean, you can you can see um, in other Christian thought the way that Stoic, um, the Stoic influence is there. For example, in Thomas Akempis's book, The Imitation of Christ. So, yeah, it's really it's really a powerful force, and and then definitely uh, worth paying attention to. By the way, um, so even though I'm going to recommend Stoicism here, and I'm going to go into some of what I perceive to be its um, real strengths, I think that it's really not the sort of philosophy that everyone should adopt um, uncritically. I would generally say that any philosophy that you encounter, you should not adopt uncritically. Think about it. It needs to be kind of uh, manipulated in a way to, to suit the, the, the your own intentions and aims and your own personality. So, for example, people who struggle to be empathic um, and who tend already towards a kind of stoic uh, way of living those people maybe need to look for a philosophical approach that helps them uh, kind of ease into more vulnerability and brokenness, uh, not into a kind of world of self-determination and self-actualization, which is what the Stoics are kind of moving towards. So if if you are, like me, a little rubbish at boundary setting, uh, Stoicism is super helpful. Um, but narcissists in general should avoid Stoicism completely um, because they will be even more destroyed by it because they are caught up in their own narrative um, all the time. So in any case, everyone obviously has to figure out what works for them. There are three Stoics uh, that most people pay attention to, um, and you may have heard their names. Maybe you are even familiar with their ideas. They are Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius. Um, but my focus here is on the two that have been most influential to me, namely Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. I've read a bit of Seneca and he is fantastic as well, but um, I feel that Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius cover some of the, the best ground, or the main ground at least. Epictetus, very interestingly enough, was an emancipated slave. So he was kind of at the lower end of the kind of class system uh, in ancient Rome. And Marcus Aurelius was... Um, the Roman Emperor. So he was he was a really big shot at one point. Um, I suppose today most people when they think of Marcus Aurelius think of uh, Ridley Scott's representation of him in, well I mean Ridley Scott was his director, I think it's R Richard Harris uh, portrayed him brilliantly in in the film Gladiator. So there is a sort of vague cultural reference there. But by the way, uh, Marcus was not killed by his um, awful son Commodus, um, although the representation of Commodus as a being a bit of a, 
uh, nasty piece of work. That that's pretty accurate. Um, I'm not sure if he killed anyone, but he certainly was uh, not a pleasant character. Um, so yeah, there are so many dimensions to sto stoicism, and it, simply because of time, uh, I'm not going to be able to go into all of it. In fact, I mean, like, when would I ever be able to go into all of it? If you are interested in the history, uh, you might want to look at um, Peter a Adamson's wonderful podcasts on the history of philosophy without gaps. It's a, uh, he's got a great primer on them. There um, and you can obviously then go and do some digging of your own, but uh, what I want to do is much simpler, and it's really about time I got to it, right? Like, so I want to look at some of the core mindsets or the kind of ideas um, of the Stoics and some of their key principles, and a few kind of uh, theological tie-ins that may help to um, frame some of their thinking. I'll um, be referring, as I said, to Epictetus and Marcus um, just for a taste of some of their thinking. But um, I promise what's great, if you find good translations, which I'll, I'll sort of talk a little bit about that towards the end, um, they are really readable. So when you think of like classical philosophy, where like think of really practical stuff. They, they're not interested in befuddling the masses. They really do want people to be able to access their thinking and good translations really help this. Um, so so I would actually, I mean, instead of getting a primer on on um, on the Stoics, I would actually just go directly to their work. I mean, you're intelligent people, you can read it for yourself and discover that. Um, so uh, yeah, um, there are going to be uh, some simplifications here, uh, as they will tend to need to be, but uh, yeah, I think will still be able to make some sense of what they're saying. So I have four words for you. Um, and what I'll do is I'll kind of unpack them, each, each of them in turn. They are order, transience, virtue, and control. And each of these words, order, transience, virtue, and control, can have really profound implications for how we think through and live our lives. Um, again, you're going to have to figure out how this uh, this fits for you. So the first word is order. The Stoics believed that there is this natural order to things, uh, a, a pattern to reality. They would speak and write about things like reason and fate and providence and nature as if they were the really real things. By the way, all of these things should be capitalized. <laughs> um, reason capital F, fate, capital P, providence, and capital N, nature. Uh, they they talked about this kind of interconnectedness of of reality. Like, so reason and nature are, are, are working together, as is in some senses fate and providence, um, although they can be understood differently. And what's interesting is, especially in, in so-called progressive uh, theological circles, Providence isn't an idea that is taken very seriously. Uh, I think uh, in Western culture there is a tendency to kind of uh, feel that we are at the mercy of everything. Um, but this is not the Stoics' take on, on things. Uh, we are not at the mercy of everything unless we choose to be. And in any case, they did hold these ideas, reason, fate, providence, and nature, a little bit loosely, um, at least as I read them, read them, and I bet you some scholar 
if there is a Stoic scholar listening to this, they're going, what are you telling people? This is just ridiculous. But it, yeah, anyway, they, they would have had some flexibility because their central question was how to live, um, how, to, how to live, uh, walk through the world in, in a way that is serene and tranquil. So they they didn't, like some Calvinists do, uh, believe that God plans and executes every last little thing down to its finest detail. They did think, though, that each of us has been given by God the resources, especially the psychological strength in a way, to find what is true and good, and then to move in the flow of that, even when fate deals us with a dodgy hand. They were as clear as anyone that really terrible things happen and that things were, well, for the most part, indifferent. They used this word indifferent to, to refer to things that were neither good nor bad, um, not, i.e. kind of things that are not in the control of will, um, which I'll get, I'll get to a little bit more of that later. Um, so there are things in the world, the Stoics um, would readily admit, that are just no fun. They knew that life isn't easy, um, more often than not. I mean, we're we're talking about, like, so when you think of Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, someone who's experienced slavery does not necessarily have a completely rosy view of the world. Someone involved in Roman politics does not have a rosy view of the world. In fact, there there is a little bit of pessimism uh, that seeps through about kind of the indifferent stuff, the stuff out of control, the control of the will. Um, but what they did believe wholeheartedly and pretty optimistically was that it is possible to feel serenity even in the midst of the storms of life. And that's why this is a really great strategy to to use because they're looking at what we can do. But more on that later. So part of the Stoic take on the order of things was this recognition of our own inherent meaningfulness and purpose. God, they would say, meant for us to be right here, right now, in this context, in this place. And yes, they would say, fate is unkind, uh, which is their way of saying that life is unkind. Um, but this does not detract from virtue and the good. By the way, I realize I've just kind of lumped fate and providence together. And that's that's a problem. <laughs> so fate is in a way that the stuff that just happens, the kind of the game. Providence is the sort of deep, deep reality that comes through. So, so I think that's an important distinction to remember. You can see in all of this, by the way, that there is a definite Platonist influence in the work of the Stoics. There is this thing we're perceiving, the world as it appears, the game. And then there is true goodness, truth, beauty, reality, and all of these things with capital letters, goodness, truth, beauty, reality. Fate deals in game logic, mostly. And many of our experiences fall prey to this game logic. So part of our responsibility and part of our power, our kind of like in, in um, inherent will, is to turn away from external things towards internal things. In a way, this, this would imply simply looking for a kind of spiritual reality that is deeper than the perceived material reality. And so this is, by the way, historically, this is what Platonism has given to the world in conjunction with Christianity. And I see them kind of developing in some ways alongside each other. Uh, you can see a Platonist, Platonist um, influence in Christianity very strongly. 
the idea is to shift the focus away from the external stuff um, towards the internal stuff. So the danger here, of course, is this that this might sound um, a little bit dualistic, uh, even a bit Gnostic in the sense of like creating a distinction between a kind of spiritual reality and a material reality. But this perception of dualism will be more the result of a bad explanation from me or a bad interpretation of the Stoics, or maybe both. The point um, is not that there are two worlds, a real one and a fake one. Even Plato, despite all the caricatures of him that exist, did not believe in splitting things up this way. The point was that reality has... I mean, I'm going to explain this in my own words, and I, I suppose this also lacks technical detail, but reality has these kind, kinds of... Um, levels and layers to it and the world of appearances has the ability if we allow it of course to pull us deeper into the layers in other words kind of deeper deeper into the truth or to push us further away into illusion but the thing to remember here is that illusion is part of reality too <laughs> so this is not a dualistic philosophy it's it's more like it's working with an idea um an idea that I like, which is the idea that you can have access to the icing on the cake and the whole cake, <laughs> including the icing. So the issue here is more uh, to do with how deep our lives and experiences can be rather than having anything to do with how um, reality is composed. I mean, they're interlinked, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. Maybe, maybe another analogy will help. Think of a Renaissance painting. You could, if you wanted to, get caught up in the actual like nature of the paint, <laughs> its chemical composition, its texture, the materiality of it, the it, its shades and hues, and you would be most definitely accessing something of the reality of the painting. But to really get the meaning of the painting, you have to step back and look at the picture, at its iconography, at its symbolism. You, you have to kind of be able to see the whole thing, paint included, but not just the paint, right? So each brushstroke of paint is part of the picture, but to understand its place, why it's there, you know, like what it's for, what it means, we need to get the whole picture. Well, Often we live life a bit like the idiot who only looks at the materiality of paint, its consistency, texture, whether it refle reflects light in the right way, whether it's shiny or matte, and so on. And the Stoics were simply trying to encourage everyone, especially themselves, because I think there's a massive aspect of self-ownership in the way they did their philosophy. They were trying to encourage everyone to, do, to look deeper, um, to notice that all of this stuff is forming a picture, a pattern, and a world of meaning. Everything we experience, the stuff we don't understand, and the stuff we understand, that is all giving us this picture, and we need to kind of take steps to understand it. And we can, they believed, step in tune with the pattern. In tune. That's a mixed metaphor. Um, we can kind of, like we can fit into the pattern as well. And that our suffering, they believe that when we do this, when we really kind of immerse ourselves in the pattern of things, our suffering is going to end. 
Our suffering, they said, is mostly, if not entirely, the result of us perceiving the picture wrongly. Now, I know this is a dangerous kind of like thing to get into because it can be so easily misunderstood. It's not to discount that people suffer, right? Like that that's not what they're trying to do. Um, that they're not trying to become this kind of uncompassionate bunch. What they are trying to do is say, let's look at what we can do about the suffering. So the question is not um in a way ontological. It's not like why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh they don't really answer that question as far as I can tell. Um their main focus is kind of just like what now? You know, I've I've been faced with this terrible circumstance. What do I do? <laughs> I must be able to do something. So that that's what the Stoics mean um when they talk about our suffering as being pretty much entirely the result of us perceiving the picture wrongly. Epictetus, for instance, said that we can't just be looking at God's works. We need to actually be able to appreciate them. So this is a way of of saying again, we can't just look at the surface of things. You have to kind of get deeper. And he also puts forward this idea that if we really understood our place as God's children, as as children of being itself and life itself, we would never think lowly thoughts about ourselves. Um, We'd be, in some sense, immune to any idea that would put us down. This isn't, though, about becoming arrogant, uh, of course, because this recognition of our place as, as kind of given, you know, our lives as given by God, is coupled with a very profound sense of humility and grace. Um, being puffed up <laughs> was something that the, the Stoics were, like, dead against. Uh, they thought They thought kind of taking people's praise and blame too seriously was a problem because it it distorted perceptions about life and reality and our relationship with these things. And these ideas of, of humility and grace and correct perception are virtues, um, which I'll get to. I'll get to virtues. So that's order. That's the word order. Now for transience. When we access the pattern, we notice something. We we notice that everything in the world of perceptions, in the world of the game, the realm of the game, is fleeting. It is transient. This transience is a grace for a few reasons, but I'm going to just mention two that, that come immediately to mind. The first is, transience means that along with everything else, suffering ends. Evil ends. But the Stoics would say that goodness never does. My little girl occasionally injures herself, and it is heartbreaking, right? Like, so we all do this. We injure ourselves. And I'll pick her up, and I'll hold her while she's, she's crying, and I'll say something like, I know it hurts. I'm so sorry, and I'll hold her tight. And I'll tell her, just feel the pain, how it's there, but see, it's getting less now. How it's not staying there, it will go away. It will not be here long. See, it's gone. The pain goes away. This is an amazing gift. Yes, hells are experienced, but they don't last forever. Of course, not all pain goes away quickly. Um, I know that. Some pain is immense and unbearable, and it it's forever, you know, like in, in a sort of metaphorical sense. But that pain will end too even if only by a death. Suffering does not 
last infinitely long. So yes, maybe that relationship of yours um, that you've invested so much in has ended or is ending. Feel that pain. It's there. I, I know it hurts and I'm so sorry, but feel it. Notice how while you work through it, while you talk to people, go to therapy, refuse to let the feelings overwhelm you. Occasionally let the feelings overwhelm you. Notice that it's getting less. It's not staying there. The pain will go away. It will not be here for long. And that trauma that you went through, I, I know about trauma and it sucks. Feel the pain. Let it be what it is. Yes, it's there. I know it hurts and I'm sorry that it hurts, but feel it. I know it's going to leave scars, but notice that the pain will get less. The story won't control you forever, even if it's taking up all of your attention now and getting in the way of you moving on with your life. It's not going to stay there. It will not be forever. And of course, like all of this, you know, when we feel pain, you know, at the physical or emotional level, we do have to work through it. But just kind of wanting to run away from it, I don't, I don't feel is very helpful. And I don't think that the Stoics would, would think it's very helpful. We do have to, you know, process things and really understand um, what the experience is. But notice that the experience is transient. The Stoics had a pretty comfortable relationship with death, by the way. And one of the funnier things um, that Epictetus says is, I must die, but must I die bawling? <laughs> Which is just so great. Um, and I mean, like, it's great to laugh about it. But I mean, if you're actually close to death, <laughs> that may not be your experience. Um, but they recognized, you know, again, the, the thing of like, we get to have our will be present in, in whatever circumstance we're in. Because everything is transient, everything must be received, by the way, as a temporary gift, as something that must be given back to providence, given back to God in a way. So the Stoics would say, and, and Epictetus does this, he talks about, you know, when something is taken from you, instead of saying it was taken from you, you say it was given back. Now, I mean, you could look at that like overly, literally and technically, but the point is to hold life in a way with open hands, uh, to not clutch to it uh, too, too viciously or too anxiously. We must be grateful for what we have, for the time we have been given, but we shouldn't cling. This, by the way, is very, very key in early Christian thought. In the book of James, for example, we read about how temporary everything is. And in a way, there's this kind of implicit assumption that a lot of us have everything is permanent i mean the way that people exercise it's great like do it I'm, i think it's wonderful um but sometimes there is this tendency to go kind of treat the body as if it's this kind of infinite thing to kind of yes we do have to look after ourselves but let's be careful not to idolize things that are in fact passing away um you know so so there's this kind of like um, holding things and trying to see the reality of them, the reality of the game itself as well. Remember that that everything is temporary. Don't pretend that it's all permanent when it really isn't. Uh, only the good is permanent. Only God is permanent. So that is one of the gifts of transience. It helps to reveal the pattern. It helps us to see the goodness that is permanent or the godness that is 
permanent or the true true which i love i love that it's from cloud atlas right like the true true like the real truth when the pain dissipates the calm returns when hunger is sated we we actually start to notice that it's more natural to feel whole than broken and in some weird sort of sense like the hunger itself becomes a kind of wholeness because it pulls us towards what is what is wholeness and and not our brokenness and of course we certainly feel emptiness and brokenness and hunger and all of these kinds of senses of lack but um what is really important here for for the stoics is that we don't focus on on that on the lack i mean it's there deal with it but don't make it the only thing this is something that i've actually learned from the stoics to return always to the fullness of life not the lacks in it or the cracks in it um those things are there but they're not the whole story and over the ages some of the best christian theology has gotten distorted i think um when the lacks and deficiencies become like the the main point more recently in some theologies it's doubt is like i i've grappled with doubt on this this podcast it's very important to see doubt but it, it has its place right like doubt is is dependent on faith as i've said before and and doubt can be doubted right like we can be more cautious in in a way about like emphasizing doubt <laughs> like doubt is everything it's not it's there it's important to look at but yeah we should chill out a little bit so um yeah we need to address these things um but addressing like life by or defining life by by its lacks is a little bit like defining the flavor of cheese by never tasting it it doesn't make any sense so um one example from classical theology is is um the idea of original sin it's actually a really good idea this this idea that we need to um pay attention to the fact that we have brokenness but it kind of got overemphasized and exaggerated and in my view it's no wonder that so many people now have self esteem issues because if the first lesson at sunday school that you got was you suck and you are inherently deser- deserving of hell and punishment um <laughs> you're going to you're going to need some therapy right like um but this is different in stoic philosophy um which kind of i think hints at the original goodness of creation right like genesis 1 and 2 stuff it begins with fullness with the real behind the game with the the authentic self behind the illusory self and so as a result of this the picture changes you are first of all loved <laughs> and no matter what your context or circumstances you were meant to be here but yes sometimes um you like i have um you've lived a false narrative lived as if you aren't made of the love um that you're made of or worthy of of love but because love brought you into existence and brings you into existence now you will be redeemed the maker is in the business of repairing broken wonders she does not want to discard anything but the most important thing is your soul so this is what the stoics would would teach yourself your healing your body will wither away because we're all dying um um and every relationship you have will end um in one way or another whether you know through death or or sort of distance or or parting 
Um, life is like this 9 billion light years will slip through your fingers like sand and you won't be able to hold on to any of it. But the thing you can hold on to, the Stoics would teach, is virtue. So that brings me to virtue. I've talked about order, then transience, now virtue. When transience opens us up to the order of things, we change our focus from external things to internal things. I've already hinted at this. And, and we discover that we have souls and that our souls need nurturing. Virtue for the Stoics is cultivated by doing your duty. Your duty is just the thing in front of you that needs to be done, right? Like, because that's what is required. It's, it needs to be attend, attended to. Even the game needs to be played. We don't have to become hermits, you know, like Stoics, Stoics were, were actually very much about being involved in everyday life. They weren't about kind of being detached like um, cynics. Um, which I think I'll get to in the next podcast if all things go according to plan. Um, in fact, we learn to engage better with the game more virtuously once we've figured out what we're here for. The mundane, stupid, boring chore that you have to do changes when it's not the point. You can perform chores more easily without feeling their weight when you're more in tune with your duty, with virtue. And your duty is, more than anything, to grow, to learn how to be fully human. And being fully human means um, beginning and ending with recognizing the goodness and grace that shines through all things. This is, this is really hard teaching. I mean, like I'm talking about this as if this is easy stuff, but, but seeing goodness through all things, the world is, you know, like it's a rough place to live sometimes. So, so how do you see this? Well, one of the ways that the Stoics um, suggested is gratitude. So um, at the beginning of his meditations, Marcus Aurelius, um, I've actually got it here, so I'm just going to turn to, to that page. Um, at the beginning of, of his meditations in book one, he, he just, I mean, the book one is just a list of people that have influenced him. It's really cool. I, I can't remember how many books there are. I've read this thing so many times, I can't remember. Um, there are 12 books um, in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And what he does, he just names these people and then he discusses what he learned from them. And I just love this. It's just, it's just uh, about gratitude. Um, so, um, for example, the first one, from my grandfather Verus, the, the lessons of noble character and even temper. I mean, just that as a starting point um, points out like what Marcus Aurelius found valuable and and number two from my father's reputation and my memory of him because he didn't uh, Marcus didn't grow up with with his dad um, he died when he was very young he says modesty and manliness right so so he just um, he names these uh, from Maximus okay gladiator reference except this is not <laughs> Maximus from from gladiator this is number 15 Mastery of self and vacillation in nothing, a cheerfulness in all circumstances, and especially in illness, a happy blend of character, mildness with dignity, readiness to do without complaining what is given to be done. And and he he talks about, you know, Maximus was, was never in a hurry or and he didn't procrastinate. He sort of had this balance. He was generous, forgiving, and without any kind of deceit. 
And so, I mean, they're just, just wonderful things. And what, what's so great about what Marcus Aurelius does there is he just talks about things in people that he is grateful for. And, and this kind of then extends to, to the rest of life. What are we grateful for? It's something that happiness psychologists like Sean Acor have pointed out. Um, just taking time to jot down a few things every day that you're grateful for attunes you to reality differently. And gratitude actually creates a kind of clarity around things. And I think that's just marvelous. I would say, by the way, though, that making ha happiness itself too absolute is also problematic. And that's not something that the Stoics were trying to do. They were talking about being kind of like even-tempered and having a tranquil mind. Seneca talks about that in, uh, especially in one of his letters. So there's this kind of tranquility that that is there that needs to escape all the kind of crazy dichotomies that the world presents us with. So when people praise you and say you're the most amazing thing since sliced bread, firstly, what kind of comparison is that? But if they say that to you, you kind of need to like acknowledge the compliment, but not let it affect you, right? Like, and the same goes for negative, uh, negative feedback when people criticize you to go kind of like, well, that's your opinion and you are entitled to it, but that's, that's not who I am, for instance. The idea is to be even tempered rather than just like outright happy. And, and the idea is not to inflate the ego on the one hand, but also not to kind of like, uh, I don't know, put it down or put yourself down. Um, the idea is, in keeping with the transience of things, is to be able to hold things lightly. So gratitude doesn't mean clinging. It means letting things go. Um, if everything is a gift, everything was once not there, and will again at some point be not there. The pattern of reality remains, though, the truth, the goodness, the love, um, the beauty. And in the end, nothing belongs to us, right? Like everything belongs to providence, God. The Stoics refer to God um, probably in a way that's a little bit more pantheistic than, than some of us are used to. But, um, but I think it's quite a, a helpful thing to, to kind of understand the world um, as given in this way. And then, so, you know, given so that we can let it go um, and move on. So uh, I think it's now time. So I've covered three words and I want to get to the, the final word, which is control. And this is the central doctrine of the Stoics. I'm going to quickly find um, from Epictetus. I should probably have put a bookmark in this. Um, he's got this uh, little book called, sometimes called the Manual. It's um, in Chiridion. Um, and he starts with this. It's just fantastic um we are responsible for some things while there are others for which we cannot be held responsible the former include our judgment our impulse our desire aversion and our mental faculties in general so that's what we we are responsible for that stuff he says um, i'll say that them again just because it may help so the things we're responsible for judgment impulse our desire aversion and our mental faculties in general not in total, you'll notice, the latter include the body, material possessions, our reputation, our status, in a word, anything not in our power to control. The former are naturally free, unconstrained and unimpeded, while the latter are frail, inferior, subject to restraint. 
and none of our affair. So when we uh, recognize the order of things, the transience of existence, the importance of virtue, we are then more capable of appreciating this simple, this very simple thing. What is within our power, our willpower, and what is not. Um, I know that Stephen Covey writes about this in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a book I was, by the way, very reluctant to read because it was so popular. Um, and then I kind of got encouraged to go to this course, and it, it turns out there's some good stuff in it, So, <laughs> one of which I will talk about now. So he talks about this in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and um, and I'm going to use his explanation because I think it's it's really spot on. But... It's a principle that comes from the Stoics, right? So, so yes, uh, through Stephen Covey's um, lens, but definitely a very Stoic principle. So th think about everything in the world that concerns you, um, that worries you. Okay, maybe not everything because we don't have all day, but some examples. Donald Trump takes up a lot of media space, way too much media space, and pretty much all of it is worrying. No, definitely all of it is worrying. So um, it turns out that hot air requires a lot of airtime. There's also then another issue, the environment. The world is falling apart. Climate, climate change denialists are morons. <laughs> so like, what are they doing? Um, you know, like denying science, like people with no brains. Okay, so there, there's that. But I mean, the, the consequence of the environment is is like being seriously damaged by us in a big way. We're dooming the planet. Well, I mean, my theory is that the planet will probably find ways to recover. We're definitely dooming ourselves. Um, and then there's global terrorism. That's another issue. There's so much of it, and it seems to be getting worse. Uh, well, at least, I don't know. You know, that's kind of media portrayals. This last week um, has been crazy on the, on the kind of global terrorism. It's really, really scary. And then in my own country, South Africa, things are looking particularly glum. Not entirely glum, by the way. There's a lot of uh, good stuff, but there's also a, a a lot of glummage gumming up the media. So, for instance, um, we recently, fairly recently, this was actually a little while ago, we were declared as having junk status by top kind of brass big world bank e economists, who, as far as I'm concerned, are elitist money mongers. Um, like, they get to tell people not to invest in countries that desperately need to be invested in just because they're, sorry, rich white guys, like idiots. And then our president, right? Like he is involved in so much corruption and it's really scary. I mean, there's there's so much that's wrong and I get why people listen to what, what's happening with our president and, and how they judge the whole country by one man, which is... Uh, as the Stoics would say, a failure of reason, and that that's not the whole story. But anyway, okay, so I've just, you know, like <laughs> ranted a bit. There's a lot of stuff in the world that is worrying. And all this stuff that's worrying, that, that's taking up headspace, causing anxiety, um, needs to be faced up to. But the Stoics would say, let's face up to it with this question. What do you have power over and what don't you have power over? Do I have any power over this? The answer is, for most of us, not very much power, maybe none at all. 
we can do some stuff maybe you know like in terms of um, looking after the environment not using plastic as much as possible preferably not at all um, recycling but most of us don't get to talk to Trump or Zuma um, most of us probably don't want to so there's all this stuff and it's taking up a terrible or it could take up an, a terrible amount of headspace but it's mostly stuff we have no power over um, so there you are and here I am and we're we're basically kind of giving ourselves permission to worry about all kinds of things that are completely beyond our control. Epictetus uses this wonderful example. He talks about this guy who plays a musical instrument. Um, and he's sitting alone at home practicing, and he plays the instrument beautifully, perfectly. But when it comes to playing in front of people, to performing, what happens? He's suddenly racked by nerves and worry. He, he messes up frequently. The performance is terrible. People think he is a really bad musician. Why? What changed? Well, first, Epictetus says, there he was at home just focusing on what he had in his control. And then he started worrying about the audience, how they would receive him. And Epictetus says, the guy is an idiot. What has that got to do with him? He cannot control people's perceptions um, or how they receive him. He can only control the instrument he's playing. And he can play it just as well as he did back home. So, by the way, I mean, like, on some level, like, it's our empathy that does this. <laughs> our empathy, empathy is wonderful. It's, like, super, like, key to how we live life. But we sort of, if we totally dethrone our sense of, of power, we, we give it over completely to other people. And the Stoics are kind of saying, just take a bit of that back. Like, take take back what is yours to control. and let other people worry about what's their responsibility. I think it's really, you know, it's fantastic um, advice because it will help us to kind of get rid of, rid of our anxiety. So back to Stephen Covey's explanation. There are two spheres. The one is our sphere of concern and the other is our sphere of influence. Almost all of our anxiety and fear and stress comes from dwelling too long or too much or for any length of time in our sphere of concern rather than in our sphere of influence. So there's world politics, but that's in our sphere of concern. Um, our bodily health, yes, we can influence that to some degree. You can influence your health uh, by exercising, eating well, you know, having good hygiene. But when you get sick, Seriously or mildly, quite a bit of that is beyond your control. You can get treatment, medication, that kind of thing. But if you have a terminal illness, well, or, you know, a sports injury, you can do so much, but the rest is, in fact, out of your control. So worrying about it, as the Stoics would teach, is kind of pointless. Um, and it's just kind of making you a nervous wreck um, or bitter or upset when it really, it really shouldn't. Interestingly enough, Jesus was a Stoic in this very specific sense. Um, he insisted that worrying about such things could not add an inch to anyone's height. By the way, the emotion that Jesus spends the most time on in the Sermon on the Mount is anxiety. Um, 
And he just said, you know, don't worry about your life, um, what you're going to eat or drink or wear, because God knows that you need these things, right? Like providence knows uh, that you need these things. So again, the Stoics would prioritize the will, our ability to make decisions and to act, not, by the way, in the modernist sense of doing whatever you want, which is stupid and makes no sense, because you're just going to hurt yourself, right? But in the classical sense of choosing to align yourself with reality, that's where real freedom comes from. When people say terrible things about you, well, work through how that makes you feel. Go to therapy, you know, if necessary. But realize that it is within your willpower to choose to dwell in your circle of influence rather than in your circle of concern. Choose the circle or sphere of concern. That's that's the thing. Um, you need to do when when that job promotion you were hoping for doesn't happen. Well, what can you do about it? If you can't do anything about it, just move on. If you can, well, then act. You know, like, but don't complain. The the Stoics are kind of going like, you know, a lot of the time people just you know they resort to complaining. Good, maybe you know, like for a short while you need to get that kind of emotional catharsis. You need to get it off your chest, but. To do nothing about it means you've basically given up the right to complain. Go and take action, like make a decision. Um, so I know this all sounds terribly easy in theory, but it does in fact work in practice. Um, and so I, I really do want to highly recommend that you take a little time to get into Stoicism, um, especially if you are going through a patch where you kind of need to, I don't know, take a little bit of stock of your life and, and figure a few things out. Um, it's not the only tool that can help. I know that. Um, and I would never recommend only one, you know, like to, to a person with a hammer, everything is a nail. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Figure out the ways that it can help. Um, hopefully I've given you at least some of a clue of, of some of the ways that it's it's helpful thinking. Um, in terms of recommendations, I can highly, highly recommend um, Epictetus's discourses and selected writings um, from uh, the Penguin publication. is fantastic. It's such such a great translation by Robert Dobbin. Um, I know that you know some people have pointed out that some sections are missing and they get very upset about it, but it's a really fantastic translation um, and it's got most of what what Epictetus says. Um, and there are lots of translations of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Um, my, my advice to you, especially um, if you just want something that, that reads easily and that you can ponder, um, get one that, that's kind of a more modern translation, more recent one. I have the, um, the newer Everyman's Library um, one. Who is the translator? The translation is by <laughs> um, ASL. I don't even know how to pronounce the surname. F-A-R-Q-U-H-A-R-S-O-N. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. But so, so um, that's a really lovely translation. But there are others that are more recent that um, will do just fine. That is my spiel on, on the Stoics. I said it was going to be long, and it turns out I was right. So um, I hope this benefits you. Um, it, it has been really, really helpful to me to, to ponder it. And to end off, um, just for fun, <laughs> and also because, you know, I just, I found this the other day and I thought, hey, this is pretty groovy. Um, well, I, groovy is probably the exact wrong choice of word. Um, 
I'm going to leave you with a recording of an 18-year-old version of myself playing an oboe sonata that I wrote. Um, and the accompanist is my mom. And it's a reminder to me of a self that I used to be, of a younger me who was already benefiting from the teachings of the Stoics. Um, and it's also a reminder, too, that it is possible to enjoy something, to perform a task without worrying about an audience. Um, and I had, I was in this space where I kind of just trusted myself and trusted that I knew what I was doing. Um, even, I mean, like, with my inexperience, I even composed a piece, which back then, you know, it's kind of cool. Um, one of the things that happened after this recording is I had to give the oboe back. Um, it was a rental because I couldn't afford to buy one and my parents couldn't either. So this was one of the last times I was able to play the instrument. And so I had to let that go. And I remember uh, when I did that, um, I was fine. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It, I really enjoyed the time that I got to, to um, play this instrument. It's, it's a kind of odd instrument, but um, yeah, uh, kind of beautiful to me. Um, we can control some things and we can't control other things. And that's okay. Uh, we have to let go of everything eventually. So here's that piece, and I hope you have a lovely, uh, lovely day, um, and good luck <laughs> for for everything that you are dealing with. Cheers.